This is The Guardian. Today, a Guardian investigation reveals the energy companies betting billions of dollars that governments aren't serious about climate change and won't force them to keep gas and oil in the ground. Damien Carrington, you're The Guardian's environment editor, and I want you to take me back to the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow in November last year when world leaders met to hash out the details of a new agreement on a pact that was supposed to steer us away from this climate disaster we're headed towards. It was very intense at the end. India wishes to take the floor. India... Uh, you have the floor. You know, people are sleep-deprived and stressed and wondering what's going to happen. And uh, so we were sat there as the, uh, they tried to get this sort of final agreement over the line. We propose and will we read as follow. If you permit me, I read that. There had been this big row about coal. And so for the first time in 25 years of UN negotiations, they'd actually got a mention of coal. And the initial mention was to phase out coal. But there have been all sorts of eruptions behind the scene led by India, but China were involved as well, and they'd watered that down to phase down. Including accelerating effort to phase down unabated coal power. And there was this moment when the president of the conference, Alex Sharma, a government minister from the UK, basically almost cried. I also understand the, the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted... It's also vital that we um, protect this package. So it was a very powerful moment. It did make it into the final agreement, and um, that was the first time you know, fossil fuel had been mentioned. Belatedly, many people would think, but nonetheless, it was there. History has been made here in Glasgow. The controversy at the time focused on projects to mine or burn coal. But that was only part of the picture. But as, as the sort of things quietened down in the week afterwards and we're thinking about it, we thought, well, what about oil and gas? Oil and gas produces about 60% of uh, the world's emissions from fossil fuels, and they weren't mentioned at all. The other thing is that often the developing countries, you know, like uh, India, uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, get a lot of stick about um, their coal plans. But actually, a lot of the big oil and gas producers are you know, rich developed countries, including uh, the US, Canada, Australia, as well as um, the countries in the Middle East and Russia, of course. And we thought, well, they seem to be escaping scrutiny to some degree, so we should really focus in on them. And when they started digging, what they found was astonishing. A disconnect. On the one hand, optimistic pledges to slash carbon emissions. On the other gas and oil companies going full steam ahead with nearly 200 extraction projects, potentially so polluting, they've been called carbon bombs. It was really striking. We're in a climate crisis, and yet we're on track to produce massive amounts of oil and gas, which will blow all of our carbon budgets and certainly lead us towards catastrophic levels of climate change if they happen. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, a five-month Guardian investigation into the carbon bombs that companies are working on right now that will blow the world right past two degrees of global heating.
Damien, where do you begin on an investigation like this? Like, how do you go about finding out what oil and gas extraction projects are in the pipeline for the next few years? So we had an idea that uh, there were more oil and gas projects being lined up than were remotely feasible in a stable climate. But actually getting any information in detail to set it out in a really kind of stark fashion was really difficult. Um, A lot of this information is either private or hidden or proprietary. Well, I mean, that's surprising to me to start with, that, that to set out to find out what feels like it should be accessible information, like like what kinds of oil and gas projects are slated to come online in the next decade, actually doesn't exist in one place. No, you're right. I mean, it really is um, kind of shocking that this isn't available. And there are there are some people right now trying to work towards creating uh, you know, a more sort of public database of what's going on. So what you do is you go and talk to all the smart people you've ever met in the you know, decade or more of reporting that I've done in this area and, and ask them, you know, what's available, what can you get, how can we do it? And so I spent a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time talking to people over Zoom calls, a lot of time looking at enormous spreadsheets. But we identified four different uh, people in the end who had access to some really good data and and worked with them very closely to try and understand it. It's annoyingly complicated, um, but we eventually got our heads around it and um, produced the story that we did. And so you spent five months chasing this data on the phone, going through lines and lines of Excel spreadsheets. As the picture started to form in front of you, what were you seeing? So there were uh, like maybe three things. Um, One is um, the number of carbon bombs. So carbon bombs is a phrase that people use for a very large fossil fuel project, in particular in this instance. um, The researcher we worked with on this defined it as more than a billion tonnes of uh, CO2, at least, from that project. Projects that will produce more than a billion tonnes of CO2. That's right, yeah. And that's, you know, three years of uh, UK emissions, like everybody, just from one project. And how many of those projects, how many of those those carbon bombs did you find? Well, for oil and gas, which is what we were looking at, 195 around the world. And if you added all of that up, because a lot of them are much bigger than 1 billion tonnes, you get to 646 billion tonnes, which is about you know, not far off 20 years of global emissions Uh, right now. And when you think that we've got less than eight years to half emissions, according to the world scientists, you can see the discrepancy is absolutely looming and stark. So another set of data we got looked at um, short-term expansion, what's going to happen over the um, next seven years. And again, we found a really large amount, 196 gigatons just in the next uh, seven years of projects from uh, companies all over the world. And then the third big thing we found was um, actually just looking at how much money these companies were looking to spend. And um, I don't know, for me personally, this was the most shocking in, in some ways was that just the 12 biggest companies around the world are planning to spend more than $100 million every day between now and 2030 on projects that cannot go ahead if we're going to stay well below 2C, which is the internationally agreed target. So when you think about that, $100 million a day for you know the rest of the decade uh, on stuff that we really can't be burning, it's just crazy. I mean, put another way, that, that $100 million a day is, is a bet. It's a bet that we're not going to be able to curb carbon emissions in the way that governments claim they're trying to. 
It's, it's hard to see it as anything other than a bet against the world acting on climate change because if the world did act on climate change, if all the governments stopped these projects, which are completely incompatible with keeping the climate safe, then these projects can't go ahead and that money's got to be wasted. So why would you invest it if you weren't hoping to get the big payouts uh, which oil and gas exploration can bring? Damien, this is stunning that there are these plans in black and white, people sitting in boardrooms planning projects that we all know for a fact will push the Earth past 1.5, even 2 degrees of global heating. Doomsday plans. To be clear, what would the world look like if these companies succeed? Well, the scientists have been scarily clear, you know, that uh, every single tonne that we add to the atmosphere increases uh, extreme weather and flooding and and so on. But with these carbon bombs, you've blown the um, budget to even have a 50% chance of staying under 1.5. So when you add in all the other things that will be happening in the world from deforestation and industrial emissions and so on, you know, you're going to blow past two degrees, maybe even way beyond that. And at that point, what we're seeing now today, which is... Dozens of people in the Vancouver area of Western Canada have died in an unprecedented heat wave. Terrible heat waves in America last year. This has turned into something catastrophic. Floods in South Africa in April, which killed 500 people. The heat wave in India continues with no sign of relief in the form of rainfall. This extraordinary heat wave, 50 degrees centigrade in India and Pakistan right now, those things are going to become really common and people are going to suffer. And I want to try to understand what these secretive carbon bomb projects look like up close. Can you talk me through some of the examples you found in your investigation? Sure. I mean, there's plenty. I mean, we looked at uh, ones in uh, Guyana off South America. We looked at uh, Scarborough off uh, Western Australia. Also in the US, there's, you know, the US has the most carbon bombs of any country. But um, one in particular, uh, which is striking, is in Mozambique. It's a massive gas project. Um, and actually, the UK government has been supporting it financially, uh, which, of course, has been uh, very controversial. One of the things about looking at a particular project is that it brings in the extra problem or element that it has local impacts as well. So wherever we went, whether it was Guyana, Australia, or in particular in Mozambique, people aren't just worried about climate change. Of course, they're worried about that. But also worried about the local impacts of all this infrastructure of, uh, you know, the sort of seismic surveys that go on offshore, causing problems for um, the marine life, also interfering with fishing. In Australia, we had uh, Indigenous people there worried about, you know, sacred sites, which um, have been there, of course, for, for many, many thousands of years. So, you know, these carbon bombs are a big, scary problem in total, but they're also very uh, local and very meaningful for people on the ground. And who are the companies behind these these projects? I mean, who are they and, and how big, how valuable are they? It's all the big companies. And in some ways, you know, the oil and gas industry has probably been the most valuable industry in the history of humanity. I saw Saudi Aramco is now, again, the most valuable company in the world, having uh, just nudged past Apple again. So they are titanic players. But, you know, we looked at all the big ones because they're the ones uh, doing the big projects. So uh, Gazprom, the Russian uh, giant, uh, PetroChina, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Chevron, Total, Petrobras in Brazil, they're all doing it. You know, you started by telling me about the, the end of the COP26 summit. 
and you know it was India and to some extent China who were cast as, as villains for trying to weaken the mention of coal in the final agreement. But from what you're telling me, a lot of the, these companies involved in gas and oil projects are, are American companies or European or Australian. What does that tell us? Absolutely. It tells us that really in the, in the sort of broad public consciousness, we haven't woken up to the fact that oil and gas is just as big a problem as coal and actually much closer to home because, as you say, many of these companies are in uh, countries where we live. And so we wanted to throw some light on, on those companies too. Yeah. I mean, all these private companies, Exxon, Shell, BP and so on, are all operating out of countries with really firm commitments to actually reduce their emissions. So I don't get it. How can they keep making these commitments to their shareholders of future profits on this scale when the governments that regulate them are planning to to massively slash their carbon emissions? That is an extremely good question, Mike, and uh, I'm I'm not sure I've got the right answer because to me it doesn't make any sense either. I think it could be that there's a time discrepancy, right? So governments are very happy to make um, carbon cutting targets for 2050, which you know is relatively long way in the future. Whereas right now, they're still handing out licenses and it's still legal for all these companies to go on and uh, do what they want to do. So, of course, yeah, there's a massive discrepancy between these broad statements and the reality of where we are right now. Okay, so you've got these governments setting ambitious goals and private companies looking at them and thinking, we don't really believe you're serious. We're just going to carry on pumping fossil fuels way out into the future. I know this data that you've gathered is hard to get. It's exclusive data. But don't governments have it? Don't they know this? Like, Where is the pressure to stop the oil and gas companies doing what they're doing? Governments will be aware of this, I think. But again, I think they just haven't joined the dots, you know. So in government, somebody once told me that at top level of governments, they can only think about two or three things at any one time. You know, there's, it's so much uh, crisis management, particularly right now. Um, I just don't think they've kind of followed their, their thinking through. And so the pressure has to come from the kind of scientists and analysts that produce information like this, from newspapers like ours, which try and uh, get it to the widest audience, and from campaigners and protesters who are becoming more and more involved in you know civil disobedience and uh, making a much bigger splash and, and much more disruption. You know, we are we are running out of time pretty fast, and therefore the the noise that politicians have to listen to is going to have to increase in volume. And what about the companies themselves, Total, Chevron, Shell? BP and others, like how do they explain what they're doing? So when you talk to the oil companies, they've all got plans to head towards uh, net zero, but um, studies that I've reported on, academic studies, um, many of these don't really stand up to a great deal of scrutiny. They rely on foresting gigantic parts of areas of the world with trees to soak up the carbon emissions or rely on biofuels which could easily compete with uh, food crops and things like that. So I don't think they're seen as enormously credible. Really, they're, they're sort of greenwashing and fig leaves. Well, it's kind of worrying because you said that, you know, governments aren't really joining the dots and corporations are just thinking about, you know, their next quarterly profits statement. Like, is anyone with the power to make a difference here actually thinking about this bigger picture that you've shown us? Honestly, I, I don't know who that person is or people are with the, with the power to make these things. You know, the governments are the people that run the world and uh, companies operate in that. But I mean, we shouldn't forget for a minute that uh, fossil fuel companies have been incredibly politically powerful. Their lobbying power is absolutely extraordinary. We, we know that the companies knew back in the 80s 
that climate change was going to be a problem. And yet they've, they worked very hard to diminish uh, concern about that. And you know, here we are in 2020, getting on for 40 years later. But uh, I think in the end, it's going to come down to people. People are just going to have to say, we, we will not accept this. I mean, another, another thing that people can do is, you know, if you're fortunate to have uh, some investments or a pension pot or something like that, you can think pretty hard about where that's uh, invested because the big international companies are all public companies all running on uh, shareholder capital. So, you know, a lot of people don't realise they're probably shareholders in these companies through their pension funds or other investments. Damien, it's been six months since the COP26 climate conference where you actually got the idea for this investigation. How does the agreement that, that came out of that summit look now? So I think, I think the agreement that came out of COP was really the absolute minimum that could have been agreed in order to keep us with a chance of keeping global heating below well below 2 to C or or 1.5. And I have to be honest that I don't think there's been a lot of movement to increase the ambition of it, which is going to be absolutely critical when the next uh, UN meeting takes place in uh, Egypt in uh, November. And Damien, if governments were serious about their commitments and forced these companies to abandon these, these carbon bomb projects, is there a credible way of doing that that doesn't risk people going without heating, not being able to power their cars or, or crashing the economy? Yeah, that's a big question and one that, you know, really needs to be worked out. I'm not aware of a sort of blueprint for, for how you do these things. Obviously, the first thing you do is stop the ones that haven't started. That's relatively um, straightforward. Governments do have the power for that. I don't think there's any concern that we're, you know, we're going to run out of energy that people are going to be short of power. You know, the problem is we've got too much fossil fuels, not too little. And of course, we've got way more sun and wind and other things than we need if we if we can uh, tap them. And Damien, what about the war in Ukraine? I'm, I'm wondering, how has the rush to replace Russian oil and gas in Europe and in other places complicated this whole picture? It's pushing in two directions at once. And I think we still don't really know where it's going to land. So in the first direction, it's pushing some countries to think that we need to explore for more oil and gas. And uh, certainly we've heard those voices in the UK. But of course, that's you know not good news for the climate, because once you step, get these things going, you get locked into them. So that's problematic. And a lot of these companies that you've exposed as investing vast sums of money in oil and gas projects also spend a lot of their marketing budgets showing off their green credentials. ExxonMobil is introducing a carbon capture and storage concept so big, it's like removing 20 million cars off the road. We know there's an urgent need to tackle climate change. That's why, at Shell, our ambition is to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner. How much are they really investing in renewable energy? To date, it's been a pittance, if I'm honest. Um, Certainly... They've made it very hard to find out exactly uh, how much of their investment is going into you know, green energy as opposed to oil and gas. But for most of the companies, it was like 1% or 2% until relatively recently. They're starting to increase those um, amounts now. But even so, you know, they're saying, oh, we'll get to 25% in a few years, which still means 75% is going on oil and gas. The other thing is that the discrepancy between the percentage of investment they spend 
on green energy and the percentage of their marketing budget that they spend on green energy is incredible. It's literally 1% versus 99%. Wow. That that much of a discrepancy? Yeah, no, it really is. Like I, um, I watched the chief financial officer of Shell doing a two and a half minute video about their financial results just a week or two ago. We won bids to develop large scale offshore wind farms with total generation capacity of 6.5 gigawatts. In China, we started up one of the world's largest hydrogen electrolyzers, and we are further expanding our electric vehicle charging network. Didn't mention oil or gas once. Wow. Not anywhere through it, you know. So, yeah, they're definitely um, in their kind of public communication, not really reflecting the true nature of their business. Coming up, energy companies are still investing in gas and oil extraction against the interests of the planet, but is doing so also against their own long-term interests. I'm Grace Dent and I am back for third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and Self-Esteem as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. Uh. Northern women <laughs> eating carbohydrates. Comfort Eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday. And you can see Grace doing Comfort Eating live for the first time on Wednesday, 25th of May at the podcast show in Islington, London. Her special guest is entrepreneur, podcaster and TV personality Jamie Lang best known for his time as a regular on Made in Chelsea. That's Comfort Eating, live with Jamie Lang on the 25th of May. Book your tickets now at gigsandtours.com. Comfort Eating with Grace Lent is supported by Ocado. Damien, if we're heading towards a climate breakdown, and it looks like we are, even if these companies aren't moved by, you know, public shame, isn't there a huge financial risk in putting so much of their money in oil and gas? Well, yeah, there is. And certainly, you know, there are some smart people um, who have warned about the possibility of a you know, financial crisis, even a crash related to what they call stranded assets. That's the idea that you've invested in a big oil and gas project, and then suddenly someone tells you you can't proceed with it. All that money is just gone you know uh, you have to write it off and so that definitely is a problem obviously the sensible thing to do would be to gradually ramp down all these companies investments in oil and gas might then return money to shareholders you know the problem is that they're all competing to be the last one standing which means they're all going at it um, which means that the total that they're exploring and going to produce is just mad but you know the oil and gas business is kind of a gambling business in that um, you know going out and uh, exploring Thrilling Wells is an expensive undertaking and you don't know really whether you're going to hit oil or, or not. Um, so I think there's probably something inherent in these companies of uh, making big bets and, uh, and, and enjoying big payouts. Um, it's just in this, in this particular case, the big payout would come at the cost of uh, climate chaos and we can't have that. Quite a gamble. I mean, these same companies, these like the decision makers within them and their children, they have to live in the world too. Like... It's their future that they're gambling with as well. Do you think they recognise that? Honestly, Mike, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to understand how you could 
operate in that world, you know, they're smart people. They really are. And understand what it all means. I don't know. Maybe they tell themselves that their company's special and they're, they're doing it the right way. The problem is in totality. They're all chasing a dream of big oil and gas projects, which um, are completely incompatible with um, you know safe climate. It just can't happen. So unfortunately, I can't speak for them, but I can't understand how you do that. Damien, Alok Sharma said on Monday that countries aren't moving fast enough in fulfilling the pledges that they made way back in November in Scotland. We need to pick up the pace. World leaders need to do more. They need to look very carefully at the commitments that they made. You know, they came here. We had 120 world leaders here who made uh, emotional, heartfelt speeches about the need to tackle climate change. Well, frankly, now they're going to have to deliver on the commitments that they made. We're about six months until the next COP summit in Egypt. And, of course, COP is a forum where, in theory, we get to try to do something about this. Is there anything that can be done right now to pressure governments and these hugely powerful energy companies to start just getting serious about this? Yeah, so the the, the UN Climate Summit meetings are um, the most powerful forum, really, that we have. This is a climate emergency. Climate scientists warn that we are already perilously close to tipping points that could lead to cascading and irreversible climate impacts. One powerful voice in in this whole thing has been uh, the UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, whose rhetoric has been coming increasingly dramatic. Climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals. But the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. Investing in new fossil fuel infrastructure is moral and economic madness. And so I think that is one voice which is really leading the way. I think at the, at the moment, you know, where we are now, it's about people making as much noise as they can to say this isn't acceptable and that we really demand change. We want change. We demand change. And we are the change. Damien, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was The Guardian's Environment Editor, Damien Carrington. Thank you so much to him. You can read his investigation into carbon bombs at theguardian.com. Damien has another exclusive there about a new scientific study that finds nearly half of existing fossil fuel production sites need to be shut down early to have any hope of limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees. So not just not starting new projects, but actually shutting existing ones down. Before we go, Grace Dent is back for third helpings of Comfort Eating, where Grace sits down with celebrities about the meals that have made them who they are. Her first guest of the new season is James May, co-presenter of The Grand Tour. Listen to that wherever you get this podcast. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Alex Atak. Sound design by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.